0: Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. So good to see you here this morning. Turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. A lot of great things happening in our church. Um, maybe you saw this on social media, but we just did a love giving thing. We saw a great response by so many of you in our church family su- supporting or supplying needs, uh, meals for uh, f- so many families in our community. want to thank you for, for all of your generosity and faithfulness in that. We've got a great men's coffee coming up. A lot of gr- uh, this, sa- this Saturday with Dan. Pastor Dan's going to be teaching on that. A lot of great events happening. So, man, there's just a lot. It's a great time to, to be plugged in and to hear what's going on in our church. Now, we are in Daniel chapter 9. This is the, what most theologians call is the hardest text in the entire Bible to interpret. Okay? Now, when I, was a senior, when I went to Bible college... Uh, One of the things I knew about going to the Bible college I went to was that my senior year, all guys, all all the graduating men had to go through a test called orals. And the whole idea was, oh, these are all guys that were going into full-time ministry. And so what you had to do was, you had to, orals was a two, two and a half hour uh, test that you sat with two of your professors and they would grill you on every major doctrine in scripture. And you had to be able to answer all of their questions and have text, Bible references to refer to it. And it was, it was, it was pretty intense. And it was something I knew was, was on the horizon. And so when I was my senior year, got ready to do orals and had to do this 35-page study guide that I, I, spent, I dedicate hours reviewing and researching that. When, we knew, when I knew that we were going to do this study in the book of Daniel, I knew Daniel 9... Verses twenty through twenty-seven was coming. Okay, this was this is kind of like okay, you got to get through this one passage, and the reason why this is such a difficult passage of scripture to interpret is because there are so many different viewpoints on how it is how it is fulfilled. I went to multiple uh, uh, blogs. Uh, I went to multiple commentaries. A lot of different theologians that have been written on this. And it just seemed like every single time I read a new author, they had a different take on this passage. And so when that, when you have to preach this, and and here's what honestly this text is kind of built for, is if we want to do a three-hour seminary class, this text is perfect. But we're not doing a three-hour seminary class, we're doing a 40-minute sermon. And so, so, so we're going to try to kind of dig down deep into some different viewpoints of how people interpret this passage, and then some application that, I, that I'm taking away from this passage, all right? Because here's what, I, what you're not going to get from me is for me to be like, this is definitely what it means. I'm going to say this is what I think the options are. Here's where I lean. But these are things that you're going to have to study and determine on your own. All right? So there's a couple questions when we read this passage, okay, that, that come to mind, all right? When, when, when Julie read the passage this morning, I mean, how many of you after hearing her read, were like, "Oh yeah, I got that figured out." All this imagery, all these, all these things that are going on, but here's the big questions that I, I'm, I'm, I think we need to answer. Number one, are the 70 weeks that are prophesied? are they literal weeks, or are they sevens or years? Are they literal calendric or are they theological and symbolic? That is the if I was going to say all the major groups of how they interpret this passage, they either believe that these are four hundred ninety literal years or these four hundred ninety years are symbolic of something that 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 the author is trying to teach us. Second question is this: Are the sixfold declaration that we read about in verse twenty four, are they fulfilled now or are they fulfilled later? That's an important question to answer. Number, number three, is the 70th week that's talked about in verse 27, it, has it already happened? Is it happening right now? Or is it future? Right? There's v- various viewpoints on that. Uh, the fourth question is, who is the he in verse 27? Is it a future antichrist? Is it someone that's been past that's already f- fulfilled these things? And then the last question is, why does this matter? Why, why does this matter to us today? And, and I'm gonna, I believe that there's a reason why this is important for us in 21st century America. Why is it important to study prophecy? Why is it important to understand these kinds of things? And so, so before we dig into a lot of these things, I want us just to read the text again so that we get a full understanding of this. And remember the context. We read the, the prayer. Daniel is, is reviewing this, the books, the Leviticus Chapter 26, Deuteronomy 4, uh, Jeremiah 25. He has read all of these things and he's trying to figure out if Babylon has fallen and, and the end of the, the, the 70 years is up, God, why aren't you moving? What's going on? I need answers. I, I'm, I'm desperate for answers from you. And so we, we we studied his prayer last week. Now look at verse 20 as, as Daniel is finishing his prayer. It says, while I was speaking and praying confessing my sin in the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come now, I have come Out to give you insight, under and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens are decreed about your people. And your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in the everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come Who one who makes desolate until the decreed is the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right. Any more clarity? Second time reading it through? Okay, so again, there's let's I want us to take a look at this passage, and here's something I want you to understand. Many times when it comes to prophetic passages of scripture. We have this shade of glasses on. Do you remember in Daniel chapter two, when we studied about the levels of the statue, I went through the four main viewpoints that most people have, their their theological, eschatological system of how they view end times. It's either through a dispensational premillennialism lens, it's through a historic premillennialism lens, it's either through an amillennialism lens or a postmillennialism lens. And what happens is, depending on your lens you see this passage very differently. So it's not like you can say, well, well, what showed me the passage of Scripture that proves one person's point above the other? They use the same passage of Scripture. okay? So what that means is you have to understand what lens are you seeing it with, and does that lens, does it, does it match what the text says in the book, and does that correspond with other texts in the Scriptures? Okay, Is it a cohesive theological system? Now, what I want to share with you this morning is I want to go through both of the, the, the literal and the calendric view of this passage. The whole idea is there's 400 literal years that are going to be fulfilled. And then we're going to go through this symbolic theological lens. Okay, I want to I want you to go through I want to go through how each of these different groups. These are the major. If I could separate them into two major groups, this is how they interpret this passage. All right. So for the people who are more literal in, in their understanding of this passage, here's what they here's what the way they look at it. All right. That the seventy weeks, the the the, the that's mentioned in, in verse twenty four. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens, which is four hundred ninety years. That these are literal years, right? that 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 these are literal years that are prophesied, and so therefore, 490 years have had it from the start of this prophecy to when the 70th week is fulfilled. All right. So if the 490 years is literal, the second point is this: if the 490 years are literal, it, there's three different uh, different dates that correspond to when when a king gave a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and and the first one in in five. 38 BC. We find that in Second Chronicles when, when King Cyrus makes this decree. But the other two dates are five, eight, 458 and 445 or 444 BC. I prefer 444 BC, which is what we find in Nehemiah chapter 1, when Artaxerxes makes a declaration to rebuild not just the temple, but the city and its walls around it. Now, we know that there's a seven-week period a six, in a 62 week period until Messiah is cut off. Now, here's what's interesting. If you take that 69 weeks, multiply it by seven, it's 483 years, all right? So that last week has not yet happened. If 444 BC, March 14th, 444 BC, which is what we know the date is from Nehemiah chapter 1, that he makes this declaration. Now, a year, a calendar year in biblical times is 360 days. So you have to multiply. 483 years by 360, because they didn't go by a 365 day calendar year until much later. But if you take that number and then plug it in the way our calendar system works today, you are given a date of March 30th, 33 AD, which is the very week that Jesus was killed. It's pretty profound. They, that this is a that they make this this declaration and it's fulfilled almost to the very week uh, you know 500 years in the future that is profound it's one of the strongest arguments for this viewpoint uh, or this interpretation all right the, the second uh, the third thing is this if it began in for uh, I'm sorry in in the sixfold declaration the sixfold declarations all are all future so look in verse 24 when it says uh, your whole to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. What they would say is only one of those, which is the to atone for iniquity, was fulfilled during the first time that Jesus came. All of the rest of these declarations are going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes a second time during his second advent. And what that means is this, there is a gap. So if you look at all the way through, verse verse 26, it says that, that the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So the end of the 69th week means that two events are going to occur. The cutting off of the Messiah, which is the death of Jesus, and the destruction of the city, which is Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. So what most people who are literalists believe is that there is a gap between verse 26 and verse 27. Because in verse 27, you have someone who's making a strong covenant who puts an end to sacrifice and offerings. What that means is that there's this church age that we're in right now. And what that means is, in order for the 70th week of Daniel to happen again, there's a number of things. The first thing that has to happen is that the temple's going to have to be rebuilt, the sacrifices are going to have to be reestablished in Jerusalem, and that once this Antichrist, future Antichrist, makes a covenant with the, the nation of Israel, it will begin the 70th week, a literal seven-year period, okay? And so and so the, the last one is in the prince in verses 26 and 27 is the final Antichrist that will make a covenant with Israel and break that covenant midway through the 70th week and bring desolations upon them. So if you're someone... Who has, who has read, for example, the person who believes in this system is someone who believes, you know, I, the Left Behind series that's, that's been read, you're like, that's me. I believe, I believe that there's going to be a rapture. God's going to take the church away, that he's going to reestablish this, is, this relationship with Israel, uh, rebuild the temple, all of these things. That, is, that the 70th week is a future seven-year period. Now, if, if, you, if that's your viewpoint, you read that and you're like, that's what I see. Okay? Now, I'm going go to go the, to the theological and the symbolic interpretation of this text, which is, again, it's, a, it's probably a more prominent viewpoint and for the, for the entire history of Christianity. The viewpoint, the literal viewpoint I just went over with you, was not even around until about 1850 A.D. No one ever believed in that system until about 150 years ago. So that's significant. If you think about the for the bulk of, of our church history... The predominant viewpoint has been the viewpoint that I'm going to be sharing with you right now. And that is this. They view that if you go all the way back, let's go back to verse 24, the 70 weeks that are decreed, these 70 weeks or 490 years are a symbolic time pointing to the fulfillment of God's covenant. All right, now why they make that, that, that distinguishment is because in this chapter, Daniel chapter 9. This is the only chapter in the entire book of Daniel that Daniel uses the covenant name Yahweh over and over and over again. You'll never see it in any other chapter, in any other passage. And so again, what Daniel and his prayer is appealing to the covenant that he made with his people. And so this 490 years is a symbolic time pointing to the fulfillment of God's covenant. For example, God giving a theological message with this number. 49 years, if you go back to Leviticus 25, which is right next to Leviticus 26, which is what Daniel was studying. When the angel Gabriel is responding to him, he's saying that there's 49 years, which is a jubilee, seven, times, seven sevens. Remember, seven is a sacred number to, to God. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, the seventh day you rest. And when there are seven seven-year periods, there is an ultimate rest. There is what they call the jubilee year that would be instituted. And during this jubilee year, this, that, would, that would result in slaves being given their freedom, uh, it would, debts, any, if you owed a debt, every debt would be canceled, and land would be restored. And so what, what they believe is that this 49, which is a which is a, which is a numerical representation of the Jubilee, if you multiply that by 10, which is 490, 10 is the number of completeness or foldness. So a tenfold Jubilee would be 490 years, which meant God was saying that the ultimate Jubilee would be given, would be given at the coming of the Messiah prince. Which is why Jesus read Isaiah 61 to initiate his ministry. Remember, he gets up, he reads the scroll of Isaiah 61, and what does he say? You know, I'm going here to, to release the captives, I'm here to cancel debts. I mean, he was announcing this jubilee, this ultimate jubilee that was about to be fulfilled, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of mankind. And so what that means is that they, they take that the 70 years that were prophesied to Daniel, because remember, Daniel was going to God and saying, God, what's happening? That Daniel did not, if, if it was 70 years, 605 B.C., he was not waiting for 535 B.C. to happen. He was crying out to God around 539 B.C., and he was saying, God, why aren't you answering this, this request? It was about 66 years. And so if Daniel viewed this 70 years as being symbolic, then the 490 years are probably symbolic. And when you compare that, To Ezekiel chapter 4, in Ezekiel chapter 4, there's this moment where where Ezekiel is told to lay on his side for 390 days and then 40 days to represent God's atoning sacrifice or or to pay for the penalty of the sins of Israel and Judah, which equals 430 years. Now, the 430-year prophecy corresponds to something. It corresponds to the time that the Israelites were in Egypt, saying that the sins of Babylonians had to be fulfilled. So that if that 430 years was symbolic of your sin being fulfilled, and the 70 years was symbolic, that it was really only 66 years, then that means that the 490 years must be symbolic as well. You following with me here? Okay, do you get this? This is the way they're viewing it. Now, what that means is, if you, the next point is that the 490 years began with Cyrus's declaration in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 21 and 22. That was the end of the 70-year uh, punishment, and the initiation of the 490 years would begin in that moment. That's what people who believe in the theological significance. The 6 declaration that we read about in verse 24 Right to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. What they believe is that these are initiated with Jesus, that Jesus initiates all of these promises. They are fulfilled in him. Uh, they, are, they are introduced and in being fulfilled with Jesus' first advent, but they will be consummated completely at his second advent. All right? that's, the, that's the other thing. Um, and the, the next point is that the coming prince in verse 26 who destroys the city was fulfilled by Titus in 70 AD. So that's, that, that's something that's already happened. And here's where people who are theological, they differentiate between the, the, the he in verse 27. There are some people that believe that the he in verse 27, that verse 27 is a parallel verse to verse 26. It restates what verse 26 said in a different term. So therefore, the entire 70 weeks of Daniel was completely passed. There are some people that believe, though, that, that take this more viewpoint, that the he, in verse 27, is a symbolic enemy of God's people. And that his declaration, right, to to put an end to sacrifice, to put an end to sacrifice and offering is an idea of this person that's always trying to thwart the worship of God. You compare this to the little horn, to the fourth kingdom in chapter 7, the little horn in chapter 8, now he's talking about another one that's a little horn figure that's in its in its... And you see this pattern over and over again. That that little horn, this antichrist, is a pattern or a typology of someone who's always on the world stage, trying to thwart the worship of God in this world. All right. And what that means is that the half of the week. Remember, go, look at the verse twenty-seven again, and it says, "For a half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering." What that means is this halfway. Half half of a week, three and a half days, which in other passages in Daniel are time, times and a half a time. These are always represented of a trial and tribulation period against the people of God. You see this in Daniel chapter seven twenty five, chapter eight verse fourteen, and chapter twelve eleven and twelve. This is a time period that's mentioned over and over and over again. This is what the whole point is. This is a pattern, and it will happen over and over and over again. Okay, so does everyone get both those viewpoints? Now we're going to raise hands. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We are not going to do that. Here's, here's what I want us to take away. I'm going to give you a main idea that I want you to, to grasp this morning. Because that's, listen, that, the first half of the sermon's all theology. All right, You just got to experience a seminary class. I wish we could do some Q&A right now. But here's the main idea I want us to have based on what we just talked about. Our certainty in God's promises always trumps our uncertainty and how some of the details are fulfilled. Our cert- I'm going to say it again. Our certainty in God's promises always trumps our uncertainty and how some of the details are fulfilled. And that's one of the things I want us to take away, that God is always faithful to his covenant promises. Now, I know what you're asking. You're asking, Ben, what do you believe? Right? When I was doing all the study, and listen, I spent more time on my sermon this, this, for this sum, Sunday than I have in years, and I enjoyed it. There's sometimes like, I wish this is the only thing I could do. It was so much fun, and, and I, I got to learn a lot, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, I feel a little bit like that undecided voter. Now, you guys know elections? Whenever there's a presidential election, there's elections. And they always have like, there's persons at 43% and this person's at 42% and there's 5% that are undecided. How many of you, whenever you hear those statistics when it's a presidential election, you're like, how can you be undecided? I mean, whenever I see there's undecided people, I'm kind of like, are you serious? How can you be undecided? It's so clear about the, who these people are. How can you be undecided? And I got to be honest with you. I now have compassion for the undecided voter because there's a part of me that reads this and there's things I see and and I grew up with this. You got to understand, I went to a dispensational school that taught the literal calendric viewpoint of this passage. I was taught, I went to Bible college and seminary and was taught the rapture and seven-year tribulation period. I was taught that. But there's something, that's something that happened to me about 12 years ago that I did that really turned my world upside down. And that was this. And I've shared this story maybe with some of you in the past. But in 2010, when I was a pastor at my old church, I, I, I felt like we, had, we were a young church. We were a baby church. And there were so many people that are coming that didn't know the Bible and they were unbelievers. And so I said, you know what we need to do? We need to really study the Bible. And so So I challenged our church to to go through the Bible in a year, and so what I did was I preached over 20 to 25 chapters every single week for an entire year, and I preached through the entire Bible to our church in an entire year, which meant I was studying 20 to 25 chapters a week to preach, and it was this giant overview every single week, and it was during that time that a lot of the the things, a lot of the man-made theological systems that I had been taught began to get really challenged in my life. And I started wondering, like, man, I don't know if I believe in it. And I was trying to hold on to the system as opposed to letting the Word of God speak for itself. And my challenge to all of you is to make sure that you do not let a man-made theological system trump the Word of God and what it says to you. That's what matters most. And so what I realized is there are certain things that God wants us to be really certain in. And the certainty that I can have in this passage after reading Daniel chapter 9, the certainty I can have is this. Number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Amen? We're not looking for another Messiah. We're not looking for another coming prince. That Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant promise to Daniel. God is faithful to his covenant promises, to his people. And we can have confidence in that today. The other thing that, that I believe is that whatever Jesus began in his first advent, he will complete when he comes back again. That I can have confidence that, listen, there are certain things that Jesus began that eventually when he comes back, it's gonna, he's going to finish the work he started. And man, that brings comfort and rest to my heart and my soul. And the other thing I can have confidence is, is this. That there, the future ahead of us, whether you believe that there's a seven-year tribulation period or this is a cyclical period that world's man system, Babylon, is going to keep attacking the people of God over and over again in various times and various ways, that trials and testing will come our way now and in the future. So my certainty and God's promises and those things always trumps the uncertainty on how some of the details are fulfilled. There's a part of me that wants the literal way to be true because that's what I grew up with. But the longer I study this, the more I lean towards more of a theological fulfillment of this passage. And so that's where I'm at today. And that leads me to, a, I'm going to give you six responses to this text that I have had. Six responses that I had this week while I was studying it that I hope that you have as, as you've heard it and taught this, this morning. The first one is this, humility with confidence. Humility with confidence. What we, what we always have to make sure is that we are humble about our stances and our beliefs in God's Word. Now, there are certain things that will never change for me. There, there are first-degree theological issues that I will just never change. I, I mean, you could put a gun to my head to denounce it. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to change what I believe about the Word of God being the, the Bible, being the inspired Word of God. I'm never going to change my ideas about who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, the Messiah who paid the penalty for my sins, that it was His death on the cross that atones for my sins, and that He literally rose three days later and that He's coming back again. There are things, as the more I read and study the Bible, there's more things that i are saying, this is of primary importance, and I will never leave that or forsake that. But there are other things that become a little, okay, do I, I'm going to hold that with an open hand because I'm learning and I'm growing. And just like I went through this thing about 12 years ago where I started being really challenged with some of the theological systems I was taught, and all of us have been handed a theological system saying, believe this way, believe this way, believe this way. And what we've got to do is have the humility to say, you know what, I might be wrong. Some of us are so proud that we can't imagine ever being wrong about anything that we'll plant our feet in the ground and we refuse to make any changes to anything that we've ever believed. What I'm saying is believe in the rock-solid things that the Bible's very clear on, but where there seems to be debate or there's openness and where there seems to be a a tension or a mystery sometimes in the Word of God, man, just allow yourself some humility to say, I'm leaning this way, this is where I believe, but you know what? I could be wrong. When it comes to, listen, if Jesus comes back today, if there's, if there's a rapture this afternoon, some of you can point to all these people like, ha, 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 see? But if all of a sudden we're living through this tribulation period and the Antichrist comes and we're living through it, all of you can be like, ha, ha, we're not going to feel like saying that, right? But it's not a po- time of us to point to people like, see, I was right. That's, that's the wrong attitude. It's not what we should have when it comes to our faith. We're not going to get up to heaven and say to each other, see, I told you so. That's not going to be our heart in heaven. And it shouldn't be our heart down here. Humility with confidence. Number two, diligence. Diligence. What I love about this passage is that there are certain times we read inside the Bible that it's not just this easy thing that we read and be like, I get it. I mean, I've shared this with you. I'm going through First Thessalonians in my quiet time. When... when Paul says, you know, pray constantly. Uh, you know, give thanks in all circumstances. It's not like, man, what does that mean? I just, I need to, I just don't understand what he means by giving thanks. Like, no, we under, that's a very simple thing. It's just a matter of, will my will obey the simple instruction that's in God's word? But there are certain things that are deeper. There are certain things that are heavier there's certain things that, that are that are that are more that are struggled to understand. And what we've got to understand is that it takes time and work and effort sometimes to study the Bible. Don't be lazy. Don't depend on you know, the guy, don't depend on people like me or or, or theological book to tell you what the Word of God says. Break open the Word of God. Break open a concordance. You know, download, you know, Blue Letter Bible on your phone and do, do the hard work of studying the words, studying the language, studying the patterns in the book. Really dig down deep. I loved studying this passage this week. I feel like I understood God more. I understand this book more. I understand this passage more. And even though I'm not like, this is, I'm definitely sure this is what it means, I'll tell you one thing. Doing the hard work made, just brought so much joy to my life this week, which leads to my, me to my, my third response, and that is awe. Awe. Man, I am in awe of God's plan. I'm in awe of God's timing. I'm in awe of, of God's, the beauty of not only the symbolic, but also the literal. And, and maybe God's meant for both of them to be true, that there is this 490-year period that was fulfilled immediately the same day that, that Jesus was supposed to be killed, like that it didn't happen before or after that very week. And maybe it's also theological to show us that there is an ultimate jubilee that he brought about through the advent of Jesus. But I am in awe this week. I'm in awe of God's plan. I'm in awe of how God brought about this fulfillment through Jesus. I'm in awe of how all the different prophecies that were prophesied about the coming Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus. And I will never forget this as long as as I live. I read a book years ago. I, I went back to seminary when I first came here to Charlotte and, uh, I had Norman Geisler as a professor. Norman Geisler is a phenomenal, he's gone to be with the Lord, but one of the, one of the greatest theologians in the 20th century, in my opinion. But Norman Geisler, I had him for apologetics. And uh, he helped write this book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I believe we've taught it here at Life University a number of times. He wrote that book with Frank Turk, Phenomenal book. But but he gives this illustration that, that the, the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling every single one of the prophecies prophesied about the Messiah is the equivalency of the mathematical probability of you being airdropped into a landmass the size of Texas. And in this landmass the size of Texas, it is filled up to your knees with quarters. All right, you got that picture? And in the sea of quarters that are filling the state of Texas up to your knees, there is one red quarter out of the sea of quarters. And the probability of one man fulfilling all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled with his coming is the equivalency of you being blindfolded, dropped into the Texas with knees full of quarters, and blindfolded, you reach down and you pull up the red quarter. That tells me that, that the awe of who Jesus is, the awe of God's plan, man, should blow us away. It should blow us away at what God has done. So I have a sense of all this morning. The fourth response is an invitation. An invitation. When I, when I look at these, look, look at verse 24 again. When I look at these things that, that the, the fulfillment of the Messiah is going to do, finish the transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Here's one of the things I know, that when Jesus came, he came to, to finish and to take the penalty and the punishment for your sin. He came to atone for your iniquity, and he came to give you his everlasting righteousness. And so when we read this, when we read what, what is decreed, we, uh, we don't have to hope for it in the future. We can read this and say, Jesus has accomplished this and is offering this to me now. That I don't have to wait for anything. And so there's an invitation when we read this to understand that what Jesus instituted when he came the first time is something that we should not ignore. And if you're sitting here this morning and saying, you know, you're just kind of playing games with God and God is just something, you know, Jesus is this person that, yeah, he's nice. He was a good prophet, good teacher, but I have never really taken seriously what he is offering me today or what he's offering mankind, then, man, I'm missing it. And there's an invitation this morning, like there's an invitation every single time you hear about Jesus to come to him and to to receive from him the fullness of these these prophecies and the fullness of these promises. Don't miss the invitation to follow Jesus. Then number five, I've got a sense of gratitude. I've got a sense of gratitude this week. If you look at verse 23, Right, You have Gabriel coming, and again, you see Gabriel coming in chapter 8, you see him coming in chapter 9, you see him coming in chapter 10. So there's, you see this connectivity between these texts. And Gabriel's coming, and look what he says to him in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for, for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. You know, here's one of the things I think is so important. The very fact that you are in this room today, the very fact that you might have understood the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus and have received the, the good news, that you have received this message to bring an end to sin, this atonement for your transgressions, that you have received his everlasting righteousness. That has offered to you and that is given to you and the understanding of him and his word is given to you Because you are loved. You are greatly loved, just like Daniel was. And Gabriel was given to Daniel to say, I want you to understand what I'm doing. I want you to understand what God's doing in this world. And the reason why God shines a light on the future for us as believers, because if there's anyone walking on the face of this planet that understands the future of humanity, that understands what is ahead of us. Though we might not know all the tiny details, we know the major details. And the reason that we can know those things and have confidence in those things is because God loves you. And because he loves you and because he wants you to have understanding, we can be grateful today. We can be grateful that God loves us so much and he cares for us. And then the last thing, the last response that I have is anticipation. Anticipation. Listen, whether this is a, you know, the Antichrist is this one final Antichrist and it's going to be the seven-year tribulation period, whether we're raptured out or we have to live through it, or, or whether this is symbolic of the little horn that always shows up at certain times in man's system to attack the worship of God, to attack the people of God, and to always thwart God's plan, We need to anticipate that there will always be a time of testing for us. There will always be a danger. There will always be something that that will try to draw us in and to not be faithful to God and to blend into Babylon and to want to just go along with the world system, not cause any waves, and we are afraid to take in the consequences of standing up against whoever the he may be. We've got to anticipate that. Because some of us are living through this right now. The reason why we're going through this Thriving in Babylon series is because we are in a midst where we're seeing Babylon become the system of our very land. And we've got to anticipate that there's going to be times of testing and times of trial that we will face whether now or in the future. It's going to happen. And we've got to strengthen our faith We've got to be more resolute in our faith. And we've got to understand it does not matter what man may do. God is in control. And that is what we have been saying week after week after week. God has a plan. God is in control. And we can rest in that. And that is our response. Listen, we can have certainty in God's promises, though we, may not be, well, though we may be uncertain in how some of the details are fulfilled. So lastly, here's my application questions for us. Number one, out of those six responses I gave to you this morning, humility, diligence, awe, invitation, gratitude, and anticipation, which one is the Holy Spirit challenging your heart right now say, that's for you, that's for you? you need to be more humble. You need to to be more diligent in studying your word. You just take things and you never really think deeply about things. Maybe it's a sense of awe. Maybe it's a sense of gratitude. But whatever the Holy Spirit is calling you to respond, listen to him now. Listen to him and respond in that way. And number two, is your certainty greater than your uncertainty? Let our certainty And the things that we talked about, that Jesus fulfills all of these things. That Jesus is redeeming the time. Let our certainty in that trump any uncertainty that we might have about things that might be mysterious to us. Where we might have some uncertainty in our understanding of things.